0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro.
1: Welcome back to Explore the Space. I am so excited to have as the guest for this episode, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who came to international attention In 2015, when in her role as a pediatrician in the city of Flint, Michigan, she helped expose a public health crisis of lead poisoning entering the city's water supply and affecting the population, but primarily affecting the the children of the city of Flint, Michigan. Since that time, I think to describe her journey as a whirlwind would be an understatement. She (sighs) has taken the lead in so many ways. And she is now here as part of a book tour to promote an incredible book that she has released, which is called what the eyes don't see. I am so excited to have this conversation. We're honored to have you, Mona. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Mark, it's great to be with you. Thank you.
1: We spoke a little bit when I was talking just now this journey that you've been on when when you went into the profession of medicine. Was a journey like the one that you've been on, was that on the horizon? Was the idea of being someone who would at some point in your career take the reins and drive a social agenda, was that something that you were thinking was going to happen for you or did you see it as a goal?
0: I don't think anybody could have anticipated having to uncover a public health disaster and really help steer a recovery, but my path of medicine and specifically my path to pediatrics. Was always about advocacy. It was always about stepping out of the box of medicine, out of the box of a hospital, um, and into the social and environmental, you know, and climate of our children. Um, so that that was always part of my job, and and that's that's how I was trained. You know, as a pediatrician, um, I was trained to to use my voice, especially for our children. I was trained um, to talk to media. I was trained to meet with legislators. Um, so I was. For fortunate to have that training that really helped permit, prepare me um, to, to do what I did and continue to do in Flint. The
1: the work that you've done has been well documented. And obviously, writing a book seems like the culmination of a natural, well, not even the culmination, right? Just the next natural step in the journey. What When you put the book together, is that what it felt like? Or did you feel like this is It was a fait accompli, or did it feel like this is the absolutely I'm going to keep pushing the agenda with the book? Where does this this book, the success of the book, the incredible response to the book, where does that all fit in?
0: Yeah, so you know, I I never, you know, as I pursued my path in medicine, I never set out to write a book. Yeah. Um, But then again, I never thought I'd, I'd, you know, uncover a crisis. Um, So. I have been blessed and privileged to have been given, given a megaphone, you know, since this crisis, and I have been using that megaphone to not only improve um, the health and outcomes of Flint children, but to take it a step bigger. This book is not just about Flint. This is this book is about kids everywhere and what we owe children everywhere um, in America. Um, so I am going to continue using this larger platform I have as long as I can. Um, to continue advocating for children.
1: So I was looking at the book and thinking about the book and thinking about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for, for, for such a long time. And trying to put all this together, because your journey as a doctor in this role, I would describe, and feel free to push back, but I would describe as an atypical one for a physician. <laughs> and yeah. there was a New York Times book review. And in that review, you're described as, and I quote, A renegade and a detective. And those two words, I've sat with them and I've thought about that, that physician as detective, yes, absolutely. That's exactly how we're trained. Right. Physician as renegade. We are not trained to be (laughs) renegades. Medical training is fall in line, respect the hierarchy. Here's the process. Here's the way we think that we are formed and then we kind of come out fully formed. I want to start with the detective piece, though. I want to start specifically around thinking about lead poisoning, right? When we think about how physicians process information, lead poisoning in the first world, that should be way down on what you and I would refer to as our differential diagnosis. When we're thinking about potential causes of disease, lead poisoning in the United States would not be the first thing to leap to mind. As you're doing this work in the detective role, why did you even think of lead?
0: Yeah, well, you know lead is something, um, and this gets at the the title of my book, What the Eyes Don't See, lead is something that we do not see. Right. Um, so it is very difficult to diagnose. And, and historically, lead poisoning has been so underdiagnosed and underrecognized even for trained physicians. Um, so lead in water is is we don't see that either. It's invisible. Um, but, but lead is known as a silent pediatric epidemic. Um, I love to trick my medical students and my residents, and, and you know, my, my first job is a medical educator. I'm like, how does a child with lead poisoning present? And they'll go through a long list of symptoms. Oh, stomach aches and headaches. And problems in school and behavior problems and the answer is no they're they're asymptomatic we and i wish they were i wish they had like they glowed in the dark or had a bright rash right or, right you know, right a, a path of pneumonic you know like signs and symptoms yeah. like, oh the, you know there's that rash you know appearing uh, right. under skin that's that's scabies there's that not heart like murmur it.
1: there's the pulsating yeah. jugular vein they, exactly yeah yeah, exactly. yeah.
0: but but, but but has none of that. Yeah. and it's it's common in in environmental health. And when you do see the consequences of lead poisoning, you don't see that for years and a uh, decades later. And when you do see it presenting such as learning disabilities or um, neurologic problems, the the, the co- that consequence is multifactorial. There's lots of other things that that can cause those same symptoms. Um so that is why it has eluded physicians for a long time, and that is why, there hasn't been a lot of efforts at, you know, not only diagnosing, but preventing um, because it's, it's, it's something that we are often blinded to. Um, and as a pediatrician, especially as a pediatrician who formerly worked in Detroit and Flint, and these are hot pockets of, of lead exposure. You know, Flint had lead exposure before this water crisis, just like many of our urban underserved children in, in Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia and D.C. These communities continue to suffer from disparities of lead exposure. Um, but and so I have I have taken care of. Dozens, if not hundreds, of children with with lead exposure and elevated lead levels. And in all of my training, and in in my my unique background of having an environmental health background and an additional public health degree, and when I ran through my differential of what could be causing this child's lead exposure, never before this water crisis did I even consider lead in water. Um, and that gets to another meaning of the title, which is when I what was drilled to me when I was a pediatric resident the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know um and i never knew oh i didn't even knew we had lead in our plumbing before this like i was completely blind to that and i you know we'd take care of patients i'm like you know do you have lead paint do you have lead soil are you playing with imported toys is there a foreign pottery like you'd run through a list we do home investigations and that was never even considered Um, so this This book is all about our need to open our eyes, to broaden our differentials, so to speak, in medicine, Um, but to be aware of the, you know, by and large, the people and the problems and the places that we choose not to see. But in medicine, it has additional nuances.
1: The leap that you made in recognizing lead exposure and realizing it's in the water, and then realizing that the water is obviously, that's that's ubiquitous, that's everyone, that's everything.
0: Yeah. To mm-hmm.
1: extend that and recognize this is now a public health issue, right? Physicians, we are good at teasing out and getting to that end point, but we're not always good at the part where I think, as you're described in the New York Times review, doing what might be perceived as being a renegade. We might not be good yeah. at necessarily speaking up and saying, "You know what? This isn't just one person with X. This could be a lot of people with X and we need to look a lot harder." It's yeah. it's a real challenge and and this is the part where your journey to be able to do that renegade like work. Was that a part of your training? When I think back on the training that I had and the way that I, you know, most physicians practice, I don't know that it would be instinctive to say, "Let's get ready to speak truth to power and and yeah. push against a uh, you know a, a municipal authority or a, a larger <laughs> one." Where Where was your journey in being able to pull that lever?
0: Yeah, so I, I think it came from many places, but you know I was really very fortunate to have had public health training. So yeah, I do have yeah. a master's in public health and health policy. So I've had. I've taken classes in epidemiology and environmental health and biostatistics. And so then another lesson of the story is that we need more and it is increasing. So, but more public health integration, Mm -hmm. um, so much, you know, in my new doc start, you know, in July. So they just started you know,
1: Oh yeah. July 1st is a big Um, day. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, you know, congratulate them. Congrats. You're, you're this new doctor. You're going to take care of patients, but, but medicine only contributes to about 15% of health outcomes. Yeah. It's all the other stuff yeah. that we need to be aware of and screen for. So my new docs, they in our clinic, they screen for poverty and hearing and vision, and they screen for food insecurity and that all, all that other stuff. So so fortunately that that is the the lens that I see our world in and, and how I practice. But it's it is not uniform and it needs to be expanded. Doctors, you know, like you alluded to, are are so myopic. We only see what is in front of us. And doctors to this day, they're like, lead poisoning. Like, you know, if a child is not presenting to the ER with acute intoxication, seizing in a coma, then it's not a problem. I'm like, well, actually the science of environmental health and public health tell us that, you know, this is subclinical. We don't see this and that the impact is even greater, even at the lowest levels. And, you know, it's, it's more of a problem. Um, so it's really important for docs to get that, um, that different, bigger perspective that also has a, a longer term projection.
1: I would say that there's one more descriptor that you possess that physicians as a whole, if we are able to grab onto and really flex can affect change at a level that might be really special. And that's courage because you did that work. You saw these things, you figured that out, you applied your training, but then in the moment to actually stand up and say, this is what I'm seeing. And I'm going to challenge people in positions of authority to do the right thing. And then when it may be that they don't right away to keep pushing and to get pushed back and to still push that's courage. And that is something that I think for physicians, we can learn from where did that come from for you?
0: So, mark as I mean, as a physician you and i know like we literally took an oath yeah we took an we took an oath to protect our community and that's why and our patients that's why we went into medicine to do good to help people yeah um so all of this work was very much with in my job description, um, what was ha- you know, as a pediatrician, I, my job is to make sure that kid in front of me is, is healthy. We treat their ear infections and we, their fevers and their broken bones. And but so much of my job as a pediatrician is to protect the potential of these children, and, and that's mm, in the, yeah. the prevention that we do. It's the immunizations and the healthy eating and the car seat safety and the helmets. That's all about tomorrow. And when something was happening that was literally threatening the tomorrows of our children. It's, it it was within my professional obligation to step up and to stand up and to be the voice of, of these children who unfortunately, um, needed that voice you know they were speaking up the people of flint were speaking up but they were being silenced it, it, it never should have gotten to the point where a doctor had to speak up with proof that children were being exposed it should have stopped when that first mom said something was wrong and you know in pediatrics 101 we know that moms are always right that's something that we <laughs> right, learned early right. on and, yeah. and, and and the fact that I had to take a doctor for for you know the tide to turn, there was I mean there was so much denial of just common sense science. But one of that lessons then is that physicians still have this incredible incredible role in our communities and we fail to use it when a doctor speaks people listen they value what you have to say
1: i just got Um, chills hearing you say that because that last (laughs) night when i was thinking about what do i want to talk about with you it's that when doctors speak people listen and just what you said a moment ago when you when a doctor it took a doctor to speak up to turn the tide there are so many thousands of physicians in this country there are so many tens of thousands of physicians around the world. And you're right. It is a, it is a, a role. It is a profession that still holds a level of esteem and gravitas. If more, yes. physici- what, what does it take to begin to mobilize that? And I think we are seeing it,
0: but I, I think so too. Yeah. What does it take um, to build that? Yeah, it takes, I think the self-efficacy that I think I can do this. It takes yeah. that training, yeah. um, you know, like, as a pediatrician, like I said, I I had advocacy training. I had, um, Mm -hmm. media training. I had some of this. Um, but I think it takes a reminder and that's what I hope that this book will do is serve as a rallying cry that you have the power within you. This is within, you know, your training and your domain and your skill set to do this work. Um, so, you know, definitely one of the themes in the book and, and it's, it's not just about physicians. It's about, um, and it wasn't, And, you know, this book is not just about me. It's about a team. It's about working collaboratively hand in hand with our community partners. Uh, I was involved um, in the March for Science, which was all about A movement of getting doctors and academics and professors out of our hospitals, out of our classrooms, out of our ivory towers to to work hand in hand with our communities, to to use science for what it's there for. Science is not meant to live in publications that nobody reads, not meant to be presented at hyper specialized societies that nobody attends to. I mean, science is meant to improve um the health and, you know, and the, of the community to the, the, to benefit people. Um, so we need to be using our science more, communi- communicating the benefit of our science and medicine more. Um, so when I, when I presented my research, the renegade part was it was an it was academic disobedience i presented my research before it went through that peer review process which is sacred and that medicine chain of command right yeah yeah it's a, it's like a, this is how you do it
1: you flew um, yes. in the face of everything we were trained as docs for over a decade to do that this is the step one this is the step two this but for you it's Forget step three, four, and five. <laughs> this is absurd. The, the, I have the data. People are going be are, are currently being harmed. We've got to yep. go forward.
0: Exactly. Our, days did, our kids did not have another day to spend. This yeah. had to be shared immediately. And that was an absolute academic no-no.
1: Right. So the night before you did that, and this is kind of the part where I think the moment of inertia for physicians and for scientists to be in that place of advocacy is we also may stand to have a lot to lose. And so there can be real pushback. The night before you, you you've made the commitment, you're gonna you know you was you're gonna do the press conference. What thoughts are running through your head in terms of this is going to be a pivot point in my life? I'm gonna get pushback. Here's how I'm gonna manage it. How are you kind of moving through that as you as you made ready to to kind of
0: break ranks? Yeah, so I knew um, I knew there was gonna be pushback because. For 18 months, there was pushback. Anybody who tried to raise any concerns about this water um, was criticized and dismissed. So that went to the moms and the activists and the pastors and the journalists and the water scientists. Everybody who tried to say something was wrong with this water was was pushed back. So, so I, I, I anticipated there would be some pushback. However nothing could have prepared me for the (laughs) onslaught of pushback. And I mean, when you are a doctor and when you are presenting science and evidence and facts, um, it's hard to believe that that could be so attacked. And it was.
1: Yeah. So now off of that template, we are asking physicians and scientists to continue to follow your example. If you were to kind of describe a tool set of, how to manage that pushback, how to stand behind the work that you've done. You know, how what what tools are there for the next the next Dr. Mona who makes a discovery yeah. or the next person who really wants to push an agenda that they feel like is right, but they know that they're gonna take some punches. What are the tools that they need to be equipped with?
0: Right. So I think, you know, be prepared for that for that pushback. Yeah. Um double check your science. And we had, we had double checked, triple checked, you know, and we knew our science was right. So, so after a period of self doubt, we fought back, we fought back with more numbers and more evidence. And, and really what got me back in the fight was the recognition that, you know, although we live in the world of, you know, spreadsheets and numbers and data, every single one of those numbers was a child, you know, Mm. a child that, you know, that I once again had taken an oath to protect. So that's what put me back in the fight. But I think another incredible kind of lesson from the story for for others who who need to do this work especially now because we are in this incredible climate of science denial nationally where we need to be doing more pushing back um is to build a team and to build a team around you of folks who who may not be just like you um so my team were like you know i used to think before this that like pediatricians pretty much had a monopoly on caring for children like who else like in my very like bubble of pediatrics uh who else cares about kids more than pediatricians uh, i was wrong um and so my team included like a water scientist because he cared about kids probably more than i did and and included uh, included journalists and an epa scientist and moms and activists so build a village build a village build a village of support around you so often you are you think you are fighting battles alone and you are not and then when this became you know a bigger issue my village grew and it included you know the state american academy of pediatrics and then the national chapter and you know the president of the ama emailed me and you know thanked me for that i mean like so your your village um your village is there you just have to find your village
1: did you feel like As a physician, other physicians rallied you. And I think that's what you were sort of describing. Yeah. Do you feel like people kind of were ready to stand shoulder to shoulder with you? You're a doc. You're doing the right work. You're standing up for not even what you believe in, but what you are seeing, right? Your eyes now see.
0: Right. Yeah. And. I, I absolutely. So uh, locally, like when I shared my research with kind of the local docs, they were yeah. really supportive. And then, you know, at the state level and national level. But a lot of that support came from like years of networking and years of built credibility. Hmm. Uh, so, so they knew me, they, they knew my ethics, they knew my professionalism. You know, they knew that I, you know, that my constituency is always children. It's not politics. Um, and I think um, that really helped me uh, continue to do this work.
1: What would be the future state if a percentage, and I wouldn't even hazard a guess, of physicians in the United States use the skill set that you just described, whether it was for a social program, whether it was for an acute medical issue like you identified, whether it was for something political? Can you even begin to guess at the impact?
0: Oh my gosh, I get goosebumps. Like right? it would be it, yeah, it would be amazing if docs stepped out there and used their voice for issues like mass incarceration or yeah. poverty yeah. or unemployment or unsafe housing or food insecurity. Like this th- these are the spaces that we need physicians to use their credible voices in and these are the spaces where they'll make the greatest impact in the lives of their patients. And I I'm optimistic. I mean, I like in my travels and my talks and speaking with these young docs out there, medical students and even undergrads and, um, and residents, they are demanding this, like they are demanding, yes. you know, public health integration. They are demanding these like certificate programs. They are demanding this. Um, so these millennials are going to be pushing us forward.
1: What role do you see for yourself and for, you know, for someone like myself, I've been a physician, I finished medical school in 2003 who either mm-hmm. want to get that sort of training to want to feel like they have the skill set to go forward or maybe feel like they have it and want to get going what are the the accelerants
0: yeah so i think there's a lot of like you know weekend or conference ish things like the american academy of pediatrics has um a legislative advocacy training in dc uh i mean i think a lot of our professional societies have a little of these like bolus conferences or workshops where you can get more of this focus training and how to be an advocate um, and you know how to use your skill set to, to do this kind of work so it's out there I think folks just have to find them if folks want to get an mph like which is a lot more um, there's even things like the MPH I did at the University of Michigan was an executive master's program like it was designed for like working people especially physicians um, and you know kind of our busier lifestyles uh, so there are opportunities to to get Get more of that training. But by and large, you know, read more books that you, you know, don't just read medicine. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, I've just been on this like criminal justice kick. I just read The New Jim Crow. I just read. Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson about death or like read books that are out of your genre of yeah. work, um, become more well-rounded, you know, read the newspaper, read, you know, read my book. Like, so just, you know, get, you know, become just more well-rounded um, as much as possible.
1: I, I would put a book that goes by the title Slavery by Another Name. Ah, And that book will knock your socks off. I was a history major in college and I focused on 19th century America and the Civil War. Doug Blackman wrote this book and it was published in 2008, exploring the forced labor of imprisoned people in the United States, primarily African-American. And that that, that book will rattle your cage for sure in this kind of idea of social activism and stuff like that. I read that book several years ago and it's one of those ones where you kind of have to take a minute (laughs) and think, oh my gosh, uh, things are different now that I've read this book.
0: Yeah, no, I would also highly recommend, I mean, the new, the new Jim Crow by Michelle yeah. Alexander. Yeah, it is yeah. it is phenomenal. I thought I understood a lot about kind of the underlying currents of racism and incarceration. But this is absolutely eye-opening, the, the move from racism, to, the move from slavery to Jim Crow to mass in, racially driven mass incarceration.
1: So now we, we've talked about this stuff. At these huge levels. But I'm also really curious about this idea because you have the rapt attention of a generation of medical students and residents that are coming through your clinic and are getting to meet with you. What does this all fit into at the bedside when you're sitting next to a patient? in the clinic or in the hospital and you're on teaching rounds, where does this idea of activism, of being a renegade, but also using your skills to learn how to be a medical detective, how are you fitting this all in so that the folks that are coming in that are right next to you when you're on your clinical rotations, that you're really scaling up, that they're getting these lessons from you directly?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the clinic that we have built is the this- perfect environment to teach all that. So our pediatric clinic, which sees most of our Flint kids, is actually on the second floor of a farmer's market. It's the only oh clinic my of its gosh, kind. That's great. That, and, and, you know, before the move to this clinic, I would tell my patients, oh, you need to eat avocados and kale and what have you. And they would just stare at me like, where am I going to get that? We have, <laughs> we have no grocery stores in Flint and there's yeah. no transportation options. So we made the conscious decision to the environmental move to move to a place where children can get good food. So now in our clinic, every single kid, no matter if they're there for an ear infection or a well-baby visit, gets a prescription for healthy eating and they fill it downstairs in the farmer's markets and includes a $15 voucher for fruits and veggies. Um, Our clinic is also across the street from the central bus stop and transportation is the biggest barrier to our patient's care. So we made sure we moved our place where people can get to it. Um, We have an integrated social worker. We have a WIC office there. We have an integrated dietitian breastfeeding service, uh, mental health services. So we have tried to create this teaching clinic that embodies everything around the social determinants of health and how to address them. Um, And it's become even more so now in response to the crisis where we also sign people up, for example, for our Flint registry and we give them the early literacy resources and do everything else that these Flint kids need even more.
1: It's just amazing to to hear the way the things that we know people need, centralizing them like that. That's just, it's so smart. It seems so obvious, but yet you're right out on the sharp edge with doing it. Of course, every clinic should be close to a place where you can get fresh food. And of course you should be close to a bus stop, but that's not normal yet.
0: No, it's not. And it needs to be. And and hopefully, you know, and we weren't the first folks to do a lot of other stuff, but uh, we hope it will continue to grow and and that people continue to recognize the, the incredible role of of the non-medical things and, the outcomes of our, of our, especially our children.
1: So you've been on this rocket ship of a journey for a couple of years, and I, I'm going to assume that you probably have not had a ton of time to reflect yet, but <laughs> that being said, in, if you had to say right now, one thing, one, one moment, one encounter, one thing you're the most proud of, That's come out of this extraordinary journey that probably is just beginning, probably not even close to the middle, let alone the end. If you were to stay to yourself, you know, at home writing, thinking, Mm
0: -hmm. what's that
1: one thing that you would say, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe we did that?
0: Yeah. So you know, writing a book is a very reflective process. So Uh I've had a chance to kind of reflect about kind of what happened and the the lessons and, and, and where we want to go. And, and to this day, like my greatest pride and my greatest privilege is being the doctor for these children. Um, you know, I, and I was in clinic just last week and it is, it is the bill, the ability that we've had to, that I've had to go from holding the tiny hand of one little kid to holding the, the hands of an entire population of children. And I wake up every day lucky and blessed and privileged to be able to do that work. Um, I pinch myself. like I have the best job in the world to be able to be the doctor um, for these children.
1: So let's take it 180 degrees and say for the next physician who is going to follow that sort of renegade-like trail that you have created for us, is there a lesson that you would give them that this is one thing, if I could take this back, if I could do this differently, if I could follow this through in a different way, make sure if this comes up for you, you do it. You know, think about that. What would that be for you? What would be a lesson learned that you might want to do differently?
0: Something I, I would have done differently. Um, I don't you know. I regret being late to the story. So huh. it was. You know, I I was the last domino in the story. Um, we were on this water for 17, 18 months before I got involved, and and you know there were there were moms who you know courageous, brave, incredible moms who were saying something was wrong, and and you know and activists and you know water science. and so many folks. You know the water was brown and we had bacteria, we had all these issues, but I didn't know about lead then. You know I knew about all these issues, and I was very much being reassured, you know just as just as you know. The state was reassuring us, um, so I wish my eyes were opened earlier. You know, I wish I had, you know, taken a break from my my world in pediatrics and my world as a wife and a mom to have paid attention even earlier. Um, you know, uh, that that is my biggest regret. So just keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Um, don't don't drink the Kool Aid all the time. Uh, you know, make sure that you are questioning everything.
1: Have you had people reach out to you to say? I think, I I think my eyes might be open. I think I may have caught into something. What do I do next?
0: Yeah, you know, I spend a lot of my time, especially now that the book's been out and all the speaking uh, with people sharing other issues, you know, either in Michigan or really all over the nation. It may be at water issues, be it lead issues, be it uh, environmental injustice issues, you know, uh, personal health issues. And I try to help folks as much as I can. But, I, you know, I direct them as well to, to find their village, to find the other folks in their community that, you know, that, that can help them and, and be part of their team
1: what's going to be the next step in your journey? If you were going to, if you're going to look forward, you're going to take your detective skills again and say, all right, here's what's coming next. You're going to finish your book tour. What, what's coming up next? What's the next six, 12, 18 months for you going to look like?
0: Yeah. So, you know, our work is just beginning in Flint. We have massive projects that are underway to, to mitigate the impact of this crisis from this uh, Flint registry to the early education resources, literacy, healthcare, nutrition. Uh, we have so much awesomeness that is happening right now in the city. Uh, so my work is committed to that, to that, to the Flint kids, um, at least for, for, the, uh, for the next few years.
1: We stand in awe of what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. I think it is.
0: It is in all of us. This is all of our jobs.
1: You're right. It is. And it's, it's a, it's the right calling. It's the right work. Um, I feel differently about the work that I do having spoken with you. And I think that a lot of other people hopefully will feel the same way because no one that practices medicine, is either in a context where there's nothing going on or exempt from the responsibility. Cause like you say, we did take an oath and there is a, Absolutely. there is a charge to do this work. You Thank you for setting that standard for us. It's important. You know, it, it it it's not necessarily instinctive for people in medicine and you're helping to change that model for not just physicians, but for people who know them to, to remind them you right. carry yep. a big microphone, but there, yep. there's a responsibility with that.
0: Yep. Turn it on. Yep.
1: Yep this has just been an extraordinary conversation and i think all of us are going to be thrilled to keep watching you work and to hopefully follow on the path that you've started to blaze
0: thank you i appreciate it
1: thanks all of you for listening please share this episode this has been an extraordinary conversation leave us a rating and a review really helps the show out please email me if you have any questions or other topics you want to hear about and we will be back soon with more
0: thank you for listening to explore the space